Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, Amanda, how are you? Anyone who walks in the class on time, I always call them out. I'm excited to see them. You know, I want to say something as we begin, and, and I, I mean this, and you know I mean it in a moment. There are a lot of families in this church who have small children and have, well, I would just say it this way, have used their children and their children's ability to, quote, disrupt and be loud, not to come to school of the Word. And I want to commend Todd and Amanda Tucker for not being that way. Yes. And Nick Missios often is that, you know, brings his children here. And I tell them this, and they say, my child's loud. He ain't going to get louder than I'm going to get. And I'll, I will out loud any child. And so if the child is really disrupted, see, she's holding Elliot. It kind of calmed him down. Encourage your friends. God has given families the gift of children, and we don't want to use God's gift as a means of withdrawing from His presence in this room on Sunday morning and other times. Amen? We don't want to do that. That's the world. We're the church. Correct? Now, that's free. A.J., you don't have to pay for that one. Okay. I knew that would wake up, A.J., well, this morning, I am so thankful to the Lord that last week we only covered, I think, the first page of the notes that I had at least. And that was not my intention, but the Holy Spirit had intentions, and thankfully His intentions are always the ones that He reveals to us at the right time. So, you remember I stopped and we were just about to get into some of the uh, technical issues, not real technical, but, you know, some of the scriptural issues concerning the title of the Son of Man, and I didn't get there. And so, this week, I'm thinking, now here's my thought process. Well, this is going to be a snap because I already have the notes. So, May, all I had to do is readjust them and, and then hand them out again. So, I sit down. I forgot what morning it was. I started looking at them, and the Lord threw that idea right out of the window and absolutely just redid the notes in a much better and, I think, clearer way than I had them originally. That's all to say this. God is good. All, God is good all the time. So this morning we're continuing with the title, The Son of Man. Now, <clears throat> why would I take so much time with this title? And the answer is obvious. Because Jesus used it regularly to refer to himself and to say about himself very basic truths that are contained in this title, which I'm, I was thinking about the various titles we have of the Lord Jesus. I think, I could be wrong, but this, I think that in this title, we have encapsulated some of the most basic truth of the incarnation that any other single title gives to us, okay? Any other title gives to us. So, let's go back and continue to look at it. In verse 2, you remember in answer to the question, are you the son of the blessed? 
And remember, the word blessed has to do with God himself. Are you the son of God? You know, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And what was Jesus' answer? He gave them an answer, but within the context of the answer, he places this title, the son of man, right smack dab in the context of this answer to say that this title reveals what's going to happen, what he has done, what he is doing, what the results would be, and et cetera. And then he explains, you will see the Son of Man, and then he gives us the rest of the statement. So let's take a look at that. By the use of this title, Jesus is asserting at least two, at least two, and there may be more, but I don't want to confine myself just to two at least two of the most essential truths about himself and his ministry. These two truths, the entire revelation and work of God in creation and in recreation, you know what I mean by that? The redeeming of mankind and the bringing about the new heavens and the earth. These two truths, on these two truths, set the entire work of God in creation and recreation. And these two truths are Jesus, sorry, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. If either one is diminished at all, the revelation is distorted. If one is eliminated, the revelation is destroyed. Do we get that? If either one is diminished at all, which is to say, well, it's more important that he's the son of God. No, it's more important that he's a man. If either one is diminished at all as to how the scriptures reveal him, the truth about God himself is diminished. Or if one is not believed or eliminated, the truth about God is what? Destroyed. Now, can we hang on to that, church? Because every heresy that has been thrown against the church has to do directly with either one of each of these or both. These are the two essential truths. And in this title, the Son of Man, Jesus is accentuating these two truths. He was the Son of Man as to his humanity, and he is the Son of Man as, his divin as to his divinity. So let's make clear and keep that essentially, essentially focused in our minds. First of all, as to the Son of, as to his humanity, the Son of Man, and I did a little bit of this last week. In Ezekiel, Yahweh, remember in your Bible when you see in the Old Testament, Lord spelled capital L and then lowercase o-r-d or maybe even uppercase o-r-d. All of your Bibles should have that word um, written or there. Probably it's about 63 or 400 times in the Old Testament. It is the name of God, Yahweh. It is that great name of God, Yahweh. And so in Ezekiel, Yahweh is speaking, the Lord says to Ezekiel. 
And he calls Ezekiel son of man 93 times. 93 times. Now, what does this mean? The Hebrew of son of man is ben Adam, son of mankind. The word Adam has to do with the earth, has to do with the created order. In Genesis 2, 7, the Lord says, and God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, Adama. And so you put an A after the word A-D-A-M, and it becomes ground. And so what God is saying to Ezekiel, essentially, and just what he's saying to him is, you're the son of humanity. You're an ordinary man. You're not a superman. You're, not, you're just an ordinary guy. So every one of us in here, using the name man generically, obviously, and not, you know, as far as gen, uh, gen, what do you call gender is concerned, every one of us in here is a son of man, correct? Yes, all of us are. We're, I was going to say, most all, we're normal human beings, but some of us are not normal, but mostly are one. You saw me stop for a moment. <clears throat> Therefore, Adam, or Adam in Hebrew, refers to that which is of the creation, of the natural order, ordinary human. And so when Jesus is saying, son of man, as an appellation, you know what an appellation means? It's a title. As a self-appellation, he is saying what? I'm a human being. I am a human being. I am of the same created ground that you are. And, you know, sometimes we have to be careful about that because when we look at the life of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, some of us think, wait a minute, Jesus is of a different sort of humanity. He is not. He is of the same sort that we are. Now, this same title is given to Daniel in 817 of Daniel where Daniel is called by the angel Gabriel as the son of man, Ben-Adam, in order to stress Daniel's humble human status before this majestic and glorious God who is giving Daniel these night visions in chapter 7. You remember some of the visions that he is getting about the beast and these nations and all of that. And so he's just saying, Daniel... I'm giving you these great revelations, but remember, you're just a guy. Don't think of yourself more than just another man. Now, with the use of this title, Jesus, again, is stressing his nat- natural origin. Listen to Galatians 4.4. 4. Paul is saying about Jesus, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, what? Born of a woman. Now, why do we stress this? We know this. We know this. How many of us know that Jesus was born of a woman called Mary? How many of us know Jesus was an ordinary human? But the problem is that if we're not careful when we look at the person and the ministry of this man, we can begin, if we're not careful, to consider him as more than an ordinary man. Do you understand that? And he's a flesh and blood man. He needs to sleep. He needs to eat. If he hits his hand with a hammer, he's going to say, ouch. He gets tired. 
He cries at funerals. He's a man of the same material constitution as we are. So let's make sure that we understand his humanity for what it is and not to lower it below what it really is nor make it greater than what it is. God has brought forth his son in a man in the same physical, natural constitution as we are, except without original sin, correct? Okay. As to his humanity, Jesus was an ordinary human, utterly dependent upon God's will and purpose, being led by the Spirit. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man, and he references himself as a normal human being, using the title from an Ezekiel reference, for instance, he is saying that I'm like every other man or woman on the face of the earth. I need to know, hear, respond to, obey, follow, submit, etc., etc., to God just like you do. Correct? Just like we do. Without the Holy Spirit in Jesus, leading Jesus, this man would never have been able to do what he did, I think. That would be my opinion. He had to have the Spirit. So he lived as a man, as we do, completely dependent upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God as he moved toward and in the purposes of God. But now, what about his title, the Son of Man, as to his divinity? Well, how do we know he was using it in that way? Well, you remember when Jesus used the title throughout his ministry, it wasn't clear that he was making himself greater than a man, that he was saying something else about himself, that he was saying something second, not secondarily, but second about himself. That wasn't clear when he used this title until I think we get to Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And in answer to the high priest's question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? What is the first words out of his mouth? I am, ego ami. Now, that's a great statement, I am. You remember Jesus was almost put to death in John 8, 58, when he says, before Abraham was, ego ami, I am, E-G-O-E-I-M-E, or E-G-I-E-I-M-I, I think, ego ami. It's that self-identification, the self-existent one, the one who has no beginning and no ending. And so that began, I'm sure, to rattle their cage. And then he says what? Then you will see, remember, the Son of Man, and then we'll look at the rest of it. So Jesus uses this title, and as he answers it in Mark 14, 62, he uses it or references in relation to the same kind of terminology that we have in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And when he is giving them this answer, these men, this high priest, they know that what he is saying here in front of them is going back and associating it too closely in for their comfort with this figure, this mysterious messianic figure of Daniel 7, 13 to 14. They know that. 
So Jesus uses eschatological language in his answer. What in the world does that mean, eschatological language? It means language having to do with what? The end times, the last days, the end of things. So he's using eschatological language in his answer. And they will see, he says, they will see. You see that? They will see. You're going to see something. They're going to see at least two proofs of his claim to be the son of the blessed, coming to the world as a son of man, as revealed in Daniel. They're going to see at least two proofs. First proof, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of power. Now, to us, oh, okay, the right hand of power. But Jesus is a Jew speaking to Jews. And when a Jew said this or heard this or read this, they had a totally different understanding than perhaps many of us would have. Because the word, the right hand of power, is a direct relationship to the highest place of authority. It is a relationship such that it has equated him with the one in whose throne he sits. You will see the, right, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Psalm 77, verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now, before I get into Daniel, do you see something in that terminology? To the years of the right hand of the Most High. To the years. In Daniel, this one to whom Jesus approaches, or the Son of Man approaches and sits, this one in Daniel 7, 13 is called what? The Ancient of Days. I'm getting ahead of myself. In other words, full of years. Full of years. A timeless one, if you would. And so, Jesus is using a terminology that says, you will see the Son of Man. You will see me. You're going to see me. And the next time you see me, I'm going to be, what? what? Sitting at God's right hand. Now, if nothing else caused them to be shaking and their eyes twitching, that had to begin the process. To claim to sit, first of all, the word sit means what? Work is what? Over, finish. Jesus, sitting means Jesus is at rest. Correct? Jesus is at rest. Now, what does that or what should that bring to our minds when we hear Jesus is sitting? You will see the Son of Man seated. You should think about Genesis chapter 2, where God on the seventh day, what? Completed all of his work and rested. In other words, as far as activity of the creation, God is sitting. Or, to be more technical, the Word of God, the Son of God, is sitting as to the continuing work of creation. He's finished that. Everything is created. 
Everything is done. All that work is done. Now, there's other work to be done, but that work is finished. So if you would, it's a terminology indicating sitting. What about Matthew eleven twenty-eight? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, I will bring you into my sitting, restful position in the throne of God as to your burdens, as to your weariness, as to the labors of this life which are breaking you down, as to the presence and work of Satan. I'll give you rest. So this word seated is a very big word. What does this word, uh, how, do I, how do I say that? What opposite do we see in this word? Our high priest is seated. What does that say? The high priest of Judaism on the day of atonement went into the most holy place to make sacrifices for the sin of the nation. Remember that? And there were no chairs in the most holy place. Why? Because his work was never finished. But this one, and when Jesus says this, you have to remember the high priests and these men remember these things. They think of these things, and we should be the same way. Whoa, look at what he's saying. He's saying he is sitting where no man can sit in the presence of Almighty God except a man who was equal with God, one with God. This is big, don't you see? Maybe not so much for us, but what I think the Holy, what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to say is take the understanding of this title and allow God to make it bigger and richer and greater and more glorious than we've ever seen before. It encompasses the entire work of God into these words. To claim to sit at the right hand of power was to claim to be David's divine Lord. Remember the great promise to David? Psalm 110, verse 1. Then Yahweh, or the Lord, says to my Lord, my Adonai, in other words, my ruler, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, the Jewish people and the understanding of the theologians didn't get this. But this is one of the most often quoted scriptures from the Old Testament as evidence that Jesus himself is that one who is the son of David. You remember how many people said, son of David, son of David. What does that mean? It refers to this and to another scripture, which we'll go into in a moment. He's the son of David. He's going to sit at God's right hand. And when this, these men hear this word, seated at the right hand of power, all of this scriptural revelation, understanding, it all floods their minds. It comes rushing in them, in upon them like a hurricane. You see, only one who is equal with God can sit in his presence at his right hand. Now, they don't understand how this works. 
But getting a little bit ahead of myself, during the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, and even beginning during the uh, time of the Babylonian captivity and moving forward, if we were to read some of the Jewish literature and the theology, there was coming into it some speculation. Could there be more than one personality in God? It was there. It was beginning. You can just see God kind of rippling up, rippling in, rippling in until we get to the New Testament. Some of it is amazing. Some of the statements and the questions that they're trying to wrestle with concerning these scriptures are amazing. Well, what is the second proof? So, first of all, the first proof has to do <clears throat> with sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, the right hand of, what is it? The authority, a power. I got it. The second proof, and you will see the Son of Man, and you will see what? He will be coming with the clouds of heaven. Clouds. Well, what is referencing? Why is Jesus referencing the clouds? Because once again, when you look at the Old Testament, and I won't go through all the scriptures. I think you have them there. Are they referenced there in the clouds? God often reveals himself in a cloud in the Old Testament. So not every time clouds are mentioned, that means God's presence. But the clouds used in these references, the cloud of glory, you remember? In Second Chronicles, when Solomon prayed, what happened? The cloud of glory filled the, tab I mean, the temple. Do you remember that? Remember in Exodus, as the people left, what happened? They were led by a pillar of fire and a cloud. Yahweh was in the cloud. He descended from Sinai in a cloud. Moses was called into the cloud. But there was also another cloud, which perhaps we don't remember. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, one day a year to sacrifice for the sin of the people. Remember that? Before he went into the Holy of Holies, what did he have to do? We're not talking about self-washings or ablutions. What did he have to take with him? Not only the basin of blood, but what else? He had to take the incense, which were smoky, and he went into the Holy of Holies and with that incense, and it filled the small room with smoke. It was a cloud in the room. Because, you see, not even the high priest on the Day of Atonement was allowed to see clearly the place of God's presence, except in a cloud. And so they, they, they're remembering this. Karen, they, they remember, they see this. So when Jesus says clouds, you know, when we read the Bible, we see clouds, we, we hear the word clouds. We don't think anything like this, do we really? No. But Jesus is a Jewish man speaking to a Jewish leadership. And see, he, when he comes in the, I'm coming in the clouds, what does that mean? I'm coming as Yahweh himself. I'm coming as the one before whom you come once a year into the Holy of Holies.
I am coming as the one who descended upon the mountain with the Ten Commandments from Moses. I'm coming as the one who filled the temple on the day of dedication when Solomon prayed. I am that one. And then in another place, remember when Jesus said, I'm coming with the clouds. Now, when he comes, now he comes as the son of glory. But what are the clouds in this context now? They're hearing it from an Old Testament perspective, and that's what it means. But it also now has New Testament connotations or anticipations. And what is that cloud? What is the cloud that Jesus with, with which or with whom Jesus returns? The church. The thousands upon thousands of white-robed believers coming with him. And when you look at the sky, it looks like a massive what? Cloud. Yahweh returning in his son with his people to rule and to reign in a new heaven and a new earth forever. Let's take some of this terminology that we just say, oh, clouds of glory and seated and whatever, and let's begin to allow God to expand us, expand our appreciation and even our experience of this God. I must move along. He comes before the Ancient of Days, as I said. This means the everlasting one, the one who has no beginning. And to this Son of Man... Quoting from verse 14 of Daniel 7. Sorry, Daniel 7, 13. It came with the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There you see the sitting, the Ancient of Days, the right hand of power. Then verse 14. And he, to this one is given, the Ancient of Days gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Here's one to whom God gives his glory. You see that? What does that say? When he is quoting this scripture, these men know, and by this time they believe, this is, and I don't want to say quasi-divine because there's no such thing, but in their minds, he was a divine, but how could he be divine? He was messianic. Is he divine? You remember, the, it's confusion because they don't have the incarnation yet to give them the full revelation. But it looks like, but, but he's, look who he is and look as his, as, at his relationship and look what, at his activity and look what God gives him. And he gives him his glory. Well, what does that mean? Why does that say something about the identity and his equality with God? To whom does God give his glory? To whom? To no one, Isaiah 42, 8 should be in your verses. He says this, my glory I give to no other. So that means that when God gives his glory to the Son of Man, he is not giving it to any one of the created order because God's glory cannot be set into anything of the created order this way. He can share his glory but he cannot give his glory as to one to whom he gives it as giving it to himself. And when they hear this, they realize what Jesus is saying. 
their teeth are probably moving in their mouth by now. Wait a minute. This carpenter's son is identifying himself to be returning, and we're going to see him seated in the throne of God, essentially. And God is going to give to him the very glory that God has in himself. And how can God give that very glory that he has in himself to another? He can't because then it resides outside of himself. And his glory doesn't reside or is not indigenous to anyone except himself. He can share it. But it's not indigenous as to originality in himself, uh, except in himself. And so to give it to someone is essentially giving it to himself, if you would. Now, this is confusing to them because they're not understanding anything of the Trinity. So, you see, this is a strong, strong suggestion, a clear statement almost, that this Son of Man is not a creature to whom God gives His glory, but is, in the very same way, the essence of God Himself. He's one with God. That's what we're seeing here. Also, you remember the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 14. We've gone through that, that I will, your son who will come after you, one of your descendants, a seed, if you would, and he's going to inherit a kingdom, and he's going to rule over that kingdom, and he's going to have dominion, and he's going to be an everlasting kingdom, and I'm going to call him, he's going to be my, what, my beloved son. So all of that is wrapped up in Psalm 110.1, and it's also part of this whole understanding of Revelation that this is a divine Messiah. But they're not getting it, and it's not given to anyone clearly until the incarnation. So... Let me jump ahead a little bit and get into this. When Jesus uses the Son of Man, he's using the basic common Hebrew Ben Adam. But then, when he uses it in reference to quoting Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is not written in Hebrew. It's that section of Daniel which is written in Aramaic. Okay? It's written in Aramaic. You see that here. You see it in uh, Nehemiah. You see it in Aramaic. You see several Aramaic passages. It's Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. And interestingly, he chooses this title, not only to say something about his divinity, but he uses this title in the Aramaic to say something about his humanity that is not as stressed in the word Ben-Adam. You're just a regular person, Diana. You're just a regular person. And so, in the Aramaic, son of man is Bar-Enos, E-N-O-S, Bar enos. The word enos, and I think you have this in your notes, means to be weak. 
So in, in this reference, Jesus is not only referencing himself as the glorious Son of God, as a human, but he's also accentuating the weakness of humanity, the infirmities, the frailties, the dependence of humanity. And so, our annals has to do with the weakness of the man who sits at the right hand of power, who rules with God as his co-ruler. This title can be understood as the son of weaknesses, weakness, or the weaknesses, the son as pertaining to human weakness of the flesh. And it's amazing revelation, but it's a very apt revelation because this revelation is essential not only to Jesus being human, but essential to him being able to be our divine redeemer as a man. This revelation is essential to our redemption. So, in summation, this title, the Son of Man, is both a title of humiliation as to his humanity. Humiliation doesn't mean I'm embarrassed. It means to be humbled, to come from the highest place to what? The lowest place. It is a title of humiliation as to his humanity and of exaltation as to his equality with God, sharing God's glory and ruling with God over the kingdom of God. In essence, the title, the Son of Man, is perhaps one of the most comprehensive descriptions of the Incarnation. It not only tells us that Jesus has come as a mere man, one of us, but also stresses that he came not as a superman. Well, that's Jesus. No. It stresses that he came in the weakness of of our flesh, taking to himself our same frailties, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. And so, next week we're going to look at why is this so essential that we have a divine human, and not only a divine human, but a divine human, a human sown into the weakness of humanity, accentuating that weakness. Why is that important? And why is it so essential as to our salvation? So, when we come back next week, we'll continue with this. Thank you.